Good morning. My name is Kristen Paleo. I have the opportunity to read this morning's scripture. It comes from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Um, it can be found also in the Pew Bible, page 966. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who is a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen. Well, good morning, church. I I was hoping there would be more than 20 for our first service. I think we have that. My name is Michael Aiken, and uh, I'm going to be your servant of the Word this morning. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and it's my joy to be able to deliver God's Word to you this morning. So let's, let's open in prayer. Lord, we are, on this July 4th day, as was already prayed, we are thankful that we have freedom in Christ. And that's a freedom, Lord, that we are free to now obey your law We were once in bondage to our sin and our sinful nature, but now you have delivered us from that through the work of Jesus. And I just just pray that 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 would be our meditation this day. And we're also, as citizens, as people who live in this country, we are thankful that we can freely give the gospel. And may we take advantage of that opportunity. Help us, Lord, to be a faithful church and to do all things for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And so now we pray for you to be our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking now this morning at the third message of Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. And so we're looking at Pergamum this morning. That's the third church. And I was going to have a map on the screen. I didn't get that. But think of it this way. Think of the first church that we looked at was Ephesus. Just think of that as York, Pennsylvania. And then you go a little further north, and the second church was Smyrna, and that is Harrisburg. And then if you go a little further north, now it's not going to be exact to how the map is, then you have Williamsport. Okay, which was at one time going to be our capital uh, in Pennsylvania, ended up not being the capital. But in Asia, that's how this is going. We're progressing north. And we see today that this church in Smyrna, this is, or excuse me, the church today is Pergamum. This is the place where Satan dwells, as we looked in the text Just some things to think about as we're reading through the seven churches here, and I encourage you to do that before every message. I'd encourage you to do that in your homes. But just 
take note to these six things, and there may be more, but just these six things as you look at the different messages. They all have a, an appropriate message or an appropriate description of Jesus that is fitting for the message that is delivered to that church. We'll see what that is this morning for our church. Number two, there is a word of commendation that is given in each of these letters. Thirdly, not in all cases, but in most cases, there is a complaint or corrective that is given. In other words, a problem that needs to be repented of. The two exceptions are what Ben preached on last week in Smyrna, and then in a couple weeks from now, we're going to look at Philadelphia, and we'll see that there is no complaint or corrective. Then the fourth thing that we see in all these letters is a promise of discipline if the church doesn't repent. Of course, that's for five out of the seven churches. And then fifthly, each of these churches and us are told, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And sixth, we see a promise to the overcomer each time. And I want you, as you go through the different letters, take note to these six different features. With today's message to Pergamum, there are four things that I would like you to see and meditate on. The first is the description of our Lord. The second is the commendation of our Lord. Thirdly, I would like you to see the complaint of our Lord. And fourthly and lastly, the promise of our Lord. Let's look first now at the description of our Lord in verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, and I think it was page 966 for the, the uh, Pew uh, Bibles. If you look at verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. If you go back to Smyrna just last week, the words Jesus is described as the one who has the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And then for Ephesus, it's the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This, these descriptions are pointing back to chapter 1, verse 16 where Jesus is described as in his right hand, he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And so in this description, with Jesus for Pergamum, we see a sharp two-edged sword. But does he literally have a sharp two-edged sword? coming out of his mouth. Well, that's the picture. But literally, when Jesus comes back, he is not going to have literally this sharp two-edged sword. This is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. And what it's teaching us is that the word of Jesus, the word of God, the gospel is powerful. And it is two-sided. On the one side, you could look at it this way, it is giving encouragement and comfort and on the other side, it is giving judgment and condemnation. Jesus is both gentle and lowly and the one who will come to bring judgment. I love what Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all 
are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now in Hebrews 4, that passage is in the context of entering God's rest. And that, that temptation for not entering his rest was to forsake Jesus, to turn their backs on Jesus and to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and the whole, the whole system of the Old Testament. But the word of God is powerful and effective to, to bring these people back to Jesus and to bring us and to bring people today to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And um, we are just, we have to be reminded that God uses his word, the teaching and preaching of it, to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. I love again Isaiah 55, another favorite passage, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Listen to this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. You may have Remember that, the word void in the old King James. God's word will not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing from which I sent it. Now, just last week, I don't know if you knew this, we had a four-inch rain deficit in central Pennsylvania. But then, Wednesday evening, around 7 o'clock, if my memory is correct, somewhere around that time, Rain came. And then the next day, Thursday, on and off, we had rain. And I, and I, I don't believe the deficit, I don't know if we wiped out the deficit, but I, we know it's not as great as it was. And even yesterday, went to a wedding, and before that wedding, it rained for a good 20 minutes where we live. And then even at the wedding itself, it rained for a while. But the whole purpose of rain, it's, a com- it's coming to the earth. It's giving us life. It's giving produce. It's giving beautiful vegetation. And so the word of Christ is powerful in accomplishing God's goals of changing lives for his glory. My question for us this morning is, do we believe that? Do we have that confidence in the gospel as we encounter people who are very difficult and we we want them to embrace Jesus Christ? Do we trust the power of God's word and his Holy Spirit? I pray that we do. Secondly, I want us to consider the, the commendation of our Lord here this morning in verse 13. The Lord says, Jesus says this, I know where you dwell. This is the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you will not deny my faith or faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus commends this church for holding fast his name. Kind of reminds me of like my, I used to have a boxer and we would play uh, with a Kong with this boxer and I would 
take that Kong, it's a, it was a big red Kong, and you know, boxers are known for their tenacious grip, and that dog would, I mean, I could almost like pick the dog up, and it would not let go. That's how this church was holding fast. They continued to positively confess Christ freely in this place where Satan's throne was. Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor and was especially known for its emperor worship. So it was the Roman capital in that, that little continent of Asia Minor. There was a temple there just for Caesar. And it was also the headquarters for four other pagan cults. And so it was really big in this city. Uh, that is false religion. So it was known for politics and for false religion. Uh, Pergamum would be like our modern Washington, D.C., a political and religious center. Ancient Rome, by the way, was okay if you worship Jesus, but they also wanted you to worship Caesar. This worship was done by placing incense on a fiery altar to the emperor. And this is why Christians were persecuted in the first century, in the second century, third century, fourth century, early part of the fourth century. And then there was some relief because of uh, an edict from Constantine. But Christians, not always consistently, but many refused to worship Caesar. And they said, Jesus alone is to be worshipped. Jesus is Lord. There's no other. He alone is to be worshipped. I'll tell you how bad things were over there in, in that ancient period of time. If you were accused of being a Christian and you wanted to avoid death, according to a letter from a young governor, Pliny the Younger, to uh, Trajan the Emperor, basically what you had to do was curse Jesus and then you could avoid being killed for being a Christian. I mentioned that it was known for its cults in Pergamum. And one of those cults, I'm not going to mention them all, but the one was called I pronounce it Asclepius. And it attracted people from around the world in search for healing. The symbol of this cult is like the symbol of our medical profession today. It was a pole with a snake going up. And so I find that very interesting. But what we need to understand here, when we think of Pergamum, this is the place where Satan's strategy was displayed. Externally, there was persecution, and internally, there was false teaching. Pergamum was a hotbed for satanic activity, and the church was planted there in a difficult city. And the Lord wanted his church to know that that he is in their midst, that he is aware of the difficulty and the temptation that they face to disown him and possibly lose their lives for that confession of faith. And I want us to be encouraged as a church this morning that the Lord knows you might feel you're in a difficult place, that we're in a difficult place. Or maybe we can broaden this, just the difficulties in life in general. Maybe the loss of health, a job, a broken relationship. 
I want you to take heart and know that the Lord knows your plight. So what struggle are you going through right now? I want you to know that the Lord knows. And may that truth that the Lord knows bring you comfort. No matter your circumstances in life currently, the Lord is aware and he is helping his people. I I think we just need to be reminded God has a purpose in our suffering and he desires for you and I to remain faithful in confessing who he is no matter what our circumstances are. Pergamum was strong in the gospel doctrine and they confessed correctly to Jesus' person and work, his work on the cross and who he was, the God-man. They confessed that. And the Lord commends them for their faithful witness. But there's a but coming up here. Thirdly, the complaint of our Lord found in verses 14 through 16. Of the seven churches in Asia, two of them receive no complaint or corrective. Those two churches, as I mentioned earlier, were Smyrna. And later on, it would be Philadelphia. But five of those churches have problems of which there needed to be repentance. Each of these messages to the seven churches gives us things that we need to consider for our own church situation. So the Lord's complaint to the church of Pergamum was this, that there was false teaching which led to unbiblical practice. They tolerated it. So our doctrine or teaching always go hand in hand with our practice. Uh, I believe as Noah rightfully mentioned in the first sermon, you know, we have gospel doctrine, that's what we need, but there must also be gospel culture. And that culture is living out the gospel, loving our brother and sister, loving our neighbor, sharing the, the word of God, caring for the poor, wanting to see justice. Jesus specifically says though, for this church, that their teaching, they were following the teaching of Balaam. So if you look at verses 14 through 16, he says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we see that Balaam, we're reminded of that story found in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. He is a man whom Balak sought out, who was, he was king of Moab, and he paid him to curse the children of Israel. But what did Balaam do instead of cursing them because the Lord was working in that situation, working in Balaam? He pronounced blessing upon them. But Balaam is not a good man. He caused the children of Israel to sin. He put a stumbling block before them. How did he do that? He advised them. He counseled the, the Moabites and the Midianites. He counseled them to, take their, to have their women lure the men to festivals, pagan festivals. And it ended up being a time of, yes, eating, but false worship and false sexual practice, sex outside of marriage. And God was displeased and judged his people for this. They needed to repent. 
And so the church at Pergamum is being lax. A good word to describe this would be antinomian. As Mike was uh, earlier telling us, this false view of freedom means I'm free to do whatever I want. That's not freedom, it's bondage. As we follow the Lord, we're free. Yes, there are restrictions that the Lord gives us, but because we have the Spirit of God, we love those restrictions because we love the Lord, and they're therefore our good and for God's glory. Today, I believe we can be tempted in many ways to compromise clear biblical standards, standards about sex, and to conform to the new, new standards of our culture. To not discipline any sin is wrong. In our, in our day of sexual toleration, it's considered okay in our culture. So the culture and the church are not going to see eye to eye. And the temptation is for us to compromise and to set our standards in accordance with what the culture says around us. By the way, the Nicolaitan, that teaching is basically the same as the teaching of Balaam. And they would say, this is antinomian, which means anti-law, no law. It would say it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. And it would say it's okay to ordain, that the church should ordain homosexual pastors. And that it should include just any unrepentant sinner into its congregation. Now, we're all sinners, but what marks us and makes us different is we continue to repent of our sin. We hate our sin. And we come to the Lord. And he forgives us by his grace. So we need to re be reminded of the Lord's standard here. Now I'm just going to just take a little aside here if I have just a couple minutes. And just real briefly and quickly, I want to just give a brief word about first, second, and third order doctrines. What is a first order doctrine? What well, would be what we're looking at right now? This teaching about Balaam and the Nicolaitans, this is a first order doctrine. Meaning, this is something that all Christians, a first order doctrine is a doctrine that all Christians will agree is correct and that we need to repent of that teaching. Or if we have a teaching of the Nicolaitans or, the, or Balaam, we need to repent of that. Some examples of first order doctrines would be the doctrine of God, the Trinity. Who Jesus is, he's the God-man. Who we are, we are sinners. And we are in need of salvation. That is by grace through faith, not by works. These are first order doctrines. That scripture is the inerrant, infallible word of God. That's, that's a first order doctrine. The tolerance of all sexual sin, whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, that's a first order doctrine. And it would need to be repented of if we tolerate it. Second order teaching would be where the different churches differ. Like for instance, Presbyterianism, that view of the church versus congregationalism. Good Christians fellowship there, that's a second order doctrine. Or different views of baptism. Pedo-baptism, which means child baptism versus believer baptism. Good Christians are gonna disagree on that. But you can have good fellowship. Or different views on the age of the earth. Is the earth old or is it young? Good Christians are going to have different views on that. Or maybe your view of the end times in the millennium. 
premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. Those are some examples of second order. Then third order could be maybe areas like whether you eat certain foods. Uh, back, in that, back in the time of Paul, it was whether you could eat food that was already sold. It was sacrificed in the temple, the pagan temple, but then was sold in the market. I think today, one example of a third order would be whether it's proper for Christians to partake of alcoholic drinks or not. But now I want to move to the end of the message. And just one further thing about sound doctrine. Just look at it as good ingredients. Just like good ingredients make good food. I just a couple days ago made two loaves of bread. Good ingredients make good food. I love a good meal. Good meals come from what? Good ingredients. That's how I want you to look at the teaching of the Lord. It's good. It's for our health. Lastly, let's look at the promise of our Lord. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, I'm sorry that I missed verse 16. Let me read that. He tells them to repent. And if they don't, he says he will come soon and war against them with the sword of his mouth. There's where the appropriateness of the description of our Lord matches the message. If they repent, the promise to those who would overcome. Who are going to be the overcomers? The overcomers are those who have faith in Jesus. 1 John 5, 4 tells us, Who is the one that overcomes? The one who has been born again. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is the world? The world is all that is opposed to God in this particular instance. It's not the physical planet, but it's loving it more than God possibly. But what's being viewed here is a system of thought, like a worldview that is anti-God, that tells you to basically live however you want. Satan loves all that God opposes, and he tempts us to believe lies. God tells us not to love and worship the world, this system of thought, and even the things in the world. Hold them in proper perspective. He tells us that we can overcome this false worship and be victorious, and we can only do that by his grace. The Lord promises hidden manna. What is that? I would just say it's the Lord sustaining his church. Jesus is the bread of life, and he will sustain his faithful church And as we discipline false teaching and false practice, the Lord is honored in that. And he says that we will receive a new name for those who overcome. And that's the true believer. We will have this new name. This new name is the Lord's name, which we bear. In ourselves, we are not worthy to have his name. But by the life and death of Jesus on our behalf, we have the gift of his righteousness and we are adopted into his family. We as believers are all sons of God by adoption as opposed to the eternal son who is a natural son from the father from all eternity. That's another set of lessons in itself, but we are adopted sons. We're not natural sons. Only Jesus is the natural son of the Father and we've been adopted by grace and we receive this new name and we're going to receive for those who overcome a stone that has a white stone that speaks of acquittal and not being guilty. 
And we're given the name, the Bible says in Revelation 14.1, the name of our Father. The Father's name is written on the forehead of believers. I close with this, this short story of Alexander the Great. He had a prisoner come before him, and when he learned that his name of this prisoner was Alexander, I forget the crime that he committed, but he told him, Alexander the Great did, that he could not have that name, for he was not worthy. We bear the name of Jesus Christ. We are not worthy ourselves, but in Christ, by his kindness and grace, we are. And may the Lord give us his grace to be faithful to him, to confess him in a growingly hostile culture, to not tolerate false teaching and unholy behavior in the church. And to God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, may you be continually praised and honored in our midst as we continue now to worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, Just help us, Lord, to be faithful, to confess you. Give us boldness. Help us, Lord, to to love people more than we love ourselves, to think of our, our neighbor and the needs that they have. Forgive us, Lord, for being selfish, and may we uh, just be like the church of Pergamum in one way and then help us to not be like her in the other ways that you've shown us. And may you receive the glory now in Jesus' name. Amen.